well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're joining us on the program today. Hopefully you had a, a good weekend. Welcome to the start of summer, by the way. 95 degrees. We're celebrating in Virginia with 95 uh, degrees and about 80% humidity. Yeah, it's it's awful, but uh, that's all right. You know, Virginia's not the only place that is uh, heating up. I tell you what, in terms of uh, Second Amendment news, state of Missouri on the uh, hot seat. Uh, at least the uh, Biden administration wants them to be on the hot seat. Uh, the Department of Justice sending a letter to Missouri Governor Mike Parson and uh, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt last week warning them that the state's new Second Amendment Preservation Act violates the supremacy clause of the Constitution and could jeopardize the relationship between federal law enforcement and uh, state and local police there in the state of Missouri. Now, the governor and the attorney general fired back with a letter of their own, pointing out that, uh, no, actually, the Second Amendment Preservation Act falls uh, squarely inside of Supreme Court precedent. They uh, they, they brought the receipts. We talked about this on Friday's uh, Bearing Arms Cam and Company, but uh, today we're actually going to talk to the attorney general himself, uh, General Eric Schmidt, joining us to talk about the letter that he received from the Biden administration, the response that the state of Missouri has sent, and what he believes the uh, next step might be here in this uh, difference of opinion over the constitutionality of the state's new Second Amendment Preservation Act. Without any further ado, let's get to the conversation. Take a look and a listen. General Smith, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Good to be with you. And uh, I, I greatly appreciate the response that uh, you and Governor Parson sent the uh, Department of Justice uh, after their warning letter about the uh, Second Amendment Preservation Act. I've got to ask, were you expecting to get any sort of response from the Biden administration to this new law? You know, not really. Um, <laughs> I guess it's not a surprise in hindsight is how aggressive this administration has been and really trying to impose their will on the American people from Washington, D.C. I mean, we've been pushing back um, on a whole host of issues, whether it's on immigration when, you know, in his first state office, um, ended the uh, migrant protection protocols and then remain in Mexico policy, which was so effective under President Trump, um, when he, you know, essentially implemented the Green New Deal without anybody ever having to vote on it um, by executive action, which essentially... Uh, it, uh, um, pretends to predict the migration patterns and future warfares in the future, pull all of that cost into real-time value, and then tax and regulate manufacturing and agriculture. So we've been on the front lines really pushing back against that kind of overreach. Um, uh, so it's, it's a, I suppose in hindsight now, <laughs> it's very predictable from this administration, but we've made it very clear in Missouri. We're going to take the lead uh, in pushing back against this kind of federal overreach. Um, and it was related to the Second Amendment. We've been Leaders on that, I mean, we are kind of leading the charge on the 23-state coalition uh, to consider um, one of the most important gun rights cases uh, since Heller, um, which is this crazy New York um, regulatory scheme where you have to prove that your life is in danger to get a concealed carry permit. I mean, this stuff is nuts. So um, all this stuff is coming. Missouri, we tend to hold the line, and this is probably just the most recent example of that. So how far do you think the administration uh, may be willing to go here? First of all, I guess, have you heard back from the administration uh, after your uh, your letter to the DOJ? We haven't. And so, yeah, they sent us a letter, um, asked, giving us until, uh, I think, on Wednesday. Given it, now they leaked it to the press, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but uh, gave us till Friday to respond. We didn't need that much time. We sent them a letter the next day saying, look, 
Um, we're not going to have the terms of our state policy dictated by the Biden Department of Justice. Um, this is the legislature's will. Um, and the Second Amendment is its fundamental right. As, as you know and your listeners know, um, the beauty of our founding is that the, this country was founded on uh, an idea, right, which was very different and stands apart from history. And that's what they said was that everybody had it wrong before. Our rights don't come from a king or a queen or any government. Our rights come from God. And government is just our shared project to protect those rights, which is why the Second Amendment was enshrined in the Bill of Rights as a, as a hedge, you know, of government infringing upon people's right to defend themselves, which was a centuries-old tradition prior to our founding. And it was, you know, enshrined in our Constitution and, and uh, very important. And so we said, look, Second Amendment is very important. We're going to stand our ground on that. Also, the, the Tenth Amendment. Um, the states have the ability uh, to move forward with policy. Um, and not be threatened by the federal government. It's important for people to remember that the federal government is of limited powers and was an agreement by the states to create the federal government. And so that's an important principle that we reminded the, the, Biden, the Biden Department of Justice on. So we're going to hold firm on that. We'll see how they respond to our response. But um, my guess is they um, disagree with us, and then we'll go from there. Well, you know, you also pointed out uh, existing Supreme Court precedent, uh, Prince versus the United States, which uh, I guess was the 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 one of the latest times that the Supreme Court, uh, uh, you know, reminded the federal government that it cannot compel states to uh, enforce federal laws or regulations. Uh, you pointed out as well the the double standard with the administration's uh, defense of sanctuary cities for illegal immigrants. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're different opinion when it comes to Second Amendment sanctuaries. Uh, and we can also look at, you know, the number of states that have legalized uh, marijuana, for instance, in violation of federal law. Uh, and I'm not aware of the DOJ sending out any letters to any of those states. Uh, but I've got to ask, are, are you concerned at all about, uh, you know, local officials like the mayor of uh, New York or Mayor Lewis or uh, Kansas City uh, trying to challenge this law in federal court? Uh, I don't know what the claim would be, maybe that uh, you're preventing them from cooperating with uh, federal law enforcement agencies. But uh, is is that an area of concern for you right now? We feel pretty confident in the case law on that. I mean, just as I said that, um, you know, the states created the federal government, the states also uh, have enabling legislation that allow political subdivisions of the state. And there's a reason why they're called subdivisions of the state to exist, whether it's counties or cities. And so ultimately the states reign supreme in our kind of um, hierarchy, right? Um, that is, that's, that's the tradition of this country and, and still remains. And so, you know, we've been successful in the past. For example, in, um, in the St. Louis area, there's a number of municipalities in St. Louis County, over 80 of them. Um, we're all trying to implement different minimum wage laws or paper or plastic laws. <laughs> Having this patchwork of laws that with Trump state law has been proven to be, you know, illegal. So we're pretty confident that if those challenges come to, um, the will of the legislature, which is a, a reflection of the will of the people, will ultimately hold. All right. Uh, now, you mentioned one of the uh, St. Louis suburbs there, uh, O'Fallon, Missouri. The police chief uh, has resigned over the new Second Amendment Preservation Act. He says that uh, uh, he's concerned that the, the new law, quote, removes sovereign immunity uh, and appears to allow law enforcement agencies and individual police officers to be sued for even good faith justified seizures of firearms in emergency circumstances. How would you respond to the police chief general? Well, look, we've we've been on the kind of the front lines with law enforcement fighting against uh, violent crime, and we have prosecutors in our major cities that uh, you know Kim Gardner and and others who aren't interested in prosecuting violent crime. And so, you know, my support of law enforcement, and I think the general public, as we kind of back the blue in these very challenging times, remains. But I think as this plays out, ultimately. Um, <clears throat> 
the way this breaks down is this law attempts to um, uh, not allow local or state officials from enforcing unconstitutional federal laws mm-hmm. against law-abiding citizens, right? So we're not talking about, you know, violent criminals or even th- that sort of thing. So I think as this plays out, it's relatively deep, right? But as this plays out, I think that ultimately, um, you know, protecting the Second Amendment is very important. Prosecuting violent criminals is very important. I think both things can happen at the same time. Absolutely. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that, that coalition of 23 state AGs who are uh, pushing back against New York's uh, may issue carry laws. Have you know Missouri is not the only state in the union to pass a a Second Amendment Preservation Act or a Second Amendment Sanctuary Law this year. Have you spoken with your counterparts in other states like Tennessee or Oklahoma or Texas uh, about their new laws? And and do you think if we do see a legal challenge to either Missouri's law or another state's uh, Second Amendment Sanctuary Law, will we see that same sort of coalition? You think uh, uh, defend uh, these new measures? I would hope so. I would hope so. I think this is one of those, you know, kind of emerging issues that, um, um, that from a legal perspective are going to play out. And I would think we'd have a lot of support that, um, you know, group of conservative Republican attorneys general across the country are, are, you know, kind of the last line of defense against the excesses of this Biden administration. I think feel confident would feel strong about these sorts of things. Um, you know, when I was in the legislature, one of the reasons why, um, you know, I have the A plus from the NRA and was, you know, supported by the, the gun owners of America that voted for and support constitutional carry, right? And um, there were all kinds of cries from people on the left that this was going to be, you know, the OK Corral on the streets of Missouri. And it just was not true, just like it wasn't true when concealed carry passed in Missouri 24 years ago. So I think as we continue to support law-abiding citizens exercising their fundamental right to self-defense, a lot of these um you know, red herrings or scare tactics are, are not ultimately true. And so I, I think most of the states that are part of that 23 state coalition in pushing back on the New York regulatory scheme would be supportive of this kind of thing, too. I would uh, I would certainly like to think so. Um, now, you know, in terms of uh, putting this law to the test right now, Congress looks like it is stymied in terms of uh, having the votes necessary to advance Joe Biden's anti-gun agenda. Knock on wood, it stays that way. But uh, we are watching the Department of Justice. They've got the public comment period open for two proposed rules. One uh, dealing with redefining a frame or a receiver. Uh, this would uh, uh, in place, you know, new regulations or new impositions on people who make their own firearms. Uh, you've got a uh, another proposed rule that would, in essence, uh, you know, seek to reclassify AR-style pistols as short-barreled rifles that need to be registered under the National Firearms Act. Uh, is is this something, or are these issues where the new Second Amendment Sanctuary or the new Second Amendment Preservation Act might come into play in Missouri? Yeah, it's very possible, and uh, it's something that even without this act, um, we've been watching, you know, in our office, and I'm sure other AGs across the country. Have and it, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that this administration wants to attack the Second Amendment. Uh, Joe Biden said it on the campaign trail. Uh, he's appointed anti-gun advocates to key positions. We're ready to fight back. I mean, it, I, at some point in the campaign, he was asked, you know, if if his administration was going to come after people's guns, and his response was, "Bingo." You know, I mean, it's like they're not. I mean, sometimes you just have to believe people when they say what you know they're going to do, and they're going to go try to do it. So. So we're going to be there uh, to make sure we're protecting people's Second Amendment rights uh, at every turn. And it would not surprise me at all if 
the administration is just sort of beginning to formulate what those plans are moving forward. Do you find it? I, I got to ask, I mean, do you find it odd that on the one hand, Democrats are saying, look, you know, we've got uh, real problems with policing. We need to end mass incarceration um, at the same and then in the same breath. They say, but we also need to make new crimes out of thin air, actually out of our Second Amendment, uh, new nonviolent possessory offenses that can put people in prison for owning a magazine that the federal government says is too large or a, uh, a gun that they say is too scary. It seems to me like they're really talking at, at cross purposes here. On the one hand, they don't want to put people in prison for nonviolent offenses. On the other hand, they want to create new nonviolent offenses that are punishable by years in federal prison. Well, I think you're right. I think that um, uh, for a long time, the left has desired to regulate uh, guns out of people's hands or you know out of existence and can continue to sort of weave this narrative in and out of whatever they're talking about, legislative or just sort of talking points that, that law-abiding citizens owning guns is somehow a threat um, to the rest of the citizenry. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. And in fact, in some of those briefs that we filed, in addition to um, making the historical argument and the legal argument and the foundational argument that the Second Amendment right is, is, a, is a God-given right that's protected under the Second Amendment, the statistics don't bear those other arguments out either. Um, what we know is that um, there there's some bad folks out there who terrorize communities, and we ought to be prosecuting those folks, right? Um, and let the folks who want to defend their families and their property leave them alone. Um, and I think that's, again, this is not that complicated, but I think that um, as uh, Democrats try to defend their failed policies in our big cities, they're looking for some sort of boogeyman, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and they typically fall on the side of, regulating guns. Yeah, which is, to me, it's disappointing because this, you know, I see this really could be a a bipartisan or a nonpartisan issue. As you say, focus on the violent offenders, uh, leave the law-abiding folks alone. That's typically going to lead to fewer arrests, less incarceration. But the folks who are getting arrested and the folks who are going to prison are the ones who are those bad actors. I'm not sure why that is such a partisan position that Democrats refuse to consider. I agree. And ultimately, People deserve to feel safe. You know, they deserve to feel safe in their homes, in their communities. And uh, the people who advocate for the fundamental right of self-defense, that's what they believe. And by the way, most Americans um, accept that to be true, too. And um, I agree with you. There ought to be more commonality. But I think that there actually is. I think what's challenging is the Biden administration is just genuflecting um, to the left at every, at every turn. All the campaign promises now. He has to deliver on and and attacks on the Second Amendment are part and parcel of that, unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, General, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Do you mind if I ask you one last question? Can I throw a curveball at you? Sure. (laughs) Now, I used to play baseball and um, I could never hit a really good slider, so. Um, we'll, we'll find out. Okay. We'll find out how well I do. Well, I'm just curious to get your take on this. So obviously, uh, for those who don't know, you are running for uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, we've got that uh, Senate seat open next year. Uh, one of the other Republicans running, Mark McCloskey, um, you had previously tried to intervene uh, in his case in the St. Louis Circuit Court. You said that he didn't you didn't think he should be facing these charges to begin with. Uh, I'm just curious your take on uh, Mark McCloskey and his wife, Patricia, pleading guilty uh, to misdemeanor offenses on Friday. Uh, forfeiting their firearms, but uh, not their right to keep and bear arms. Would you have liked to have seen Mark McCloskey take this case to trial? Well, I'm not uh, his lawyer, and um, we uh, we intervened in the case on behalf of all six million Missourians, right? And so I can't really speak to what his thought process was on that. Probably a good question for him. But 
But I can tell you that the reason why we intervened in that case, uh, seeking a dismissal, because my belief was it could lead to a chilling effect um, on law-abiding citizens who were perfectly justified in defending their lives and their families and their home and their property. Missouri has the most expansive castle doctrine in the country. And so we felt like if you've got a prosecutor like Kim Gardner in St. Louis City engaging in a political prosecution like that, um, that would have a chilling effect on the rest of Missourians. And again, in my unwavering support of the Second Amendment, was appropriate for us to enter and, and seek the dismissal. So, yeah, the, that all happened last week as well. And I just, you know, for the general principle, I just don't think that people ought to be prosecuted in those kinds of situations. And I, I stand by that. Uh, well, listen, I'm right there with you. And, uh, of course, Kim Gardner was removed from that case by the uh, judge because of uh, she engaged in politicking off of that case. Special prosecutor ended up amending uh, the charges that the jury could have considered both the felony unlawful use of a weapon. And then he added those misdemeanor offenses. Did To me, that signaled that the special prosecutor um, may not have felt that he had a particularly strong case when it came to that felony, but, but maybe some political considerations uh, came into play as well, didn't want to dismiss the charges outright. Uh, do you think that politics continued to play a role in the prosecution of the McCloskeys? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, the whole thing was a, was a political prosecution. Yeah. And, um, you know, the charges should have never been brought in the first place. I mean, that's the whole, the tragedy of this thing is that here we are a year later and, um, you know, she was running uh, at the time in a, in a primary, um, you know, and the charges came out, I think, a couple weeks before that primary. And uh, But again, it was just, it's very dangerous. I mean, if you think about that in this country, that you would have a prosecutor, and, and as the state's top prosecutor, I understand the power that comes along with that, mm-hmm. but, um, affecting people's liberty, um, to, to, because of a political position, that you would charge someone with a felony, uh, with, a, with uh, imprisonment on the line. It's just very dangerous, and which is why we took the extraordinary step of, of seeking a dismissal and intervening in the case. Well, listen, I'm glad that you did that. I appreciate you standing up for the Second Amendment rights of Missourians. I really appreciate you joining us on the program today. I hope we get a chance to speak again very soon. Love to. All right, Cam. Great. Thank you so much. Attorney General Eric Schmidt joining us here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I do appreciate the Attorney General joining us on the program, and uh, hopefully he'll be back if there are any updates here, I'd like to think that the Biden administration is going to just leave this one alone. But you know, something tells me that uh, we may see a court fight. If, if not over Missouri's new law, then uh, uh, Texas' new Second Amendment Sanctuary Act and some of the other states that have uh, filed uh, or passed this legislation as well. Uh, although it's going to be interesting to see where those challenges come from. Will it be from the federal government? Will it be from the Biden administration itself? Or will it be from uh, localities inside of these new Second Amendment sanctuaries who want to challenge uh, the constitutionality of these new laws. Either way, we will uh, let you know, and we will continue to keep a close eye on any new developments. Now let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We will start there with a case out of Illinois. Here's the headline. Arrest made in a June 2nd drive-by shooting in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, according to the News Gazette, 18-year-old Sharman Brown has been arrested. Charges of aggravated battery with a firearm. Bond on the arrest warrant said of $1 million. It was uh, just after 5 o'clock on June the 2nd. Police responded to the 1800 block of Joanne Lane in Champaign, Illinois. They found an 18-year-old male with a single life-threatening gunshot wound. He remains in critical condition. Uh, An investigation revealed that he was shot from uh, from a passing vehicle. Uh, Sharman Brown arrested around 11 a.m. last Thursday 
just a few blocks away from where that shooting took place in a uh, effort between the Champaign Police Department, Champaign County Street Crimes Task Force and the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force. As it turns out, Brown was sentenced in late March of this year, just a few months ago, to two years probation for having a stolen weapon in November of 2020. The sentence was in addition to a return to juvenile prison for violating his probation for possessing a gun on January 26th of last year, as well as for possession of a weapon and possession with intent to deliver about four ounces of pot on July 24th of last year. So if you are keeping track of things, this is the third time in less than a year The 18-year-old has been caught in illegal possession of a firearm, at least one shooting connected to this 18-year-old, and yet, and yet, slaps on the wrist every time around. Yep. So, this is amazing to me. In March of this year, Charmin Brown had already been uh, convicted or pled guilty to two prior counts of illegally possessing a firearm. He goes before a judge a third time, and the judge says, you know, we can't keep meeting like this, Mr. Brown, but I'm going to send you to probation anyway. Now, this is in a state where lawmakers are looking to crack down on legal gun owners by making it more expensive and more burdensome a process to obtain the firearms owner ID card that is necessary for you to legally possess a firearm. Yeah. And this comes at a time, by the way, when the Illinois State Police has a backlog of tens of thousands of FOID card applications, tens of thousands of concealed carry applications. They cannot process these applications in the time that is allotted to the Illinois State Police under state law. So you've got people who are twiddling their thumbs, waiting for the state to give them permission to exercise their Second Amendment rights. What happens when an individual violates Illinois law repeatedly? Nothing apparently happens. Nothing. Probation all around. And uh, Charmin Brown, there of uh, Champaign, Illinois, is today's recidivist report. Now, our uh, armed citizen story from Atlanta, Georgia, where a, a driver shot a man who uh, allegedly tried to carjack. And this was last Thursday night. It was in northwest Atlanta. It was about 11 p.m. Officers called to the 900 block of Brady Avenue for a report of a shooting uh, when they got there, the uh, victim said that he was driving in the area and was forced to stop by a man in another car. That suspect then pulled the victim out of his car, leading to what police describe as a physical struggle between the two men. At some point during the fight, the victim shot the suspect who then fled the scene. The victim stayed on scene, uh, waited for police. He's cooperating with law enforcement. Uh, at this point, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution says it's not clear if the two men previously knew each other. Suspect eventually uh, was located at a local hospital. After he was treated for non-life-threatening injuries, he was arrested and charged with kidnapping as well as simple battery and uh, booked into the Fulton County Jail. Police uh, have so far declined to release the name of uh, either the suspect or the victim in that case, but we'll try to uh, follow along with any updates as they become available. And finally today, our good deed of the day. I'm not sure who the good deed is here, but uh, I'm going to go with the 99-year-old Brooklyn veteran Uh, who finally received his Purple Heart, as well as those who ensure that this took place. Uh, So you're looking at Army Chief of Staff, uh, General James McConville. That's him on the left. And then uh, on the right, that is uh, Osceola Ossie Fletcher, who was wounded in Normandy 
1944, but never received his Purple Heart. He is now 99 years of age, and he received his Purple Heart at a special ceremony at Fort Hamilton Army Base in uh, Bay Ridge on June 18th. Ossie Fletcher attended the ceremony with his wife Pauline, his daughter Jacqueline Streets, a dozen family members, one great-grandson, the uh, Army veteran, also a uh, veteran of the New York Police Department, was wounded three times uh, in World War II, most notably during a German rocket attack that left a scar on his head and a gash in his leg. And uh, he was never able to receive that Purple Heart. The Army Chief of Staff said Ossie spent his entire life giving to those around him, and today is Ossie's turn to receive, and today we are giving him. Now we are delivering something that he has been entitled to for over 77 years. Today, we pay long overdue tribute for the sacrifices he made to our nation and for free people everywhere. Now let's get you the purple heart that you are due. He then knelt down beside Fletcher, pinned the purple heart on him next to three other medals that uh, he received for his service uh, in World War II. Fletcher's daughter said that she and her family had tried for decades uh, to get their father his purple heart. Uh, They were told back in the 70s that all of his records had been destroyed in a fire uh, he says, she said, uh, quote, we're finally looking at all of our soldiers in the same way. America is trying to shift its thinking about culture and race, uh, and I appreciate that. Ossie Fletcher, meanwhile, says it is about time. You will remember the Fletcher name now. Well, I can tell you, as the son of a World War II veteran who is uh, no longer here, I am uh, so glad and grateful that uh, Osceola Ossie Fletcher is being recognized for his service to this nation the sacrifices that he made during World War II. Uh, and I know that he has already received uh, thanks from the, uh, uh, from the Army, from those uh, well-wishers in attendance. But uh, on behalf of our audience, uh, Mr. Fletcher, sir, we thank you for your service, and we thank you for your very good deeds. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company, but I want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. Don't forget, you can become a VIP member of BearingArms.com. All you have to do is go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNS. You'll get 25% off of your VIP membership. That'll give you uh, access to exclusive commentary, analysis. We've got a piece about the Ninth Circuit taking up uh, Duncan versus, I guess now it's Duncan versus Bonta because we've got a new attorney general in California, but that is one of our uh, subscriber-only stories today. You can check that out at BearingArms.com. We really do appreciate your support. It allows us to do things like this program uh, each and every weekday. So thank you very much for being a VIP member. And for those of you who are not yet VIP members, I would strongly encourage you to do so. All right. We will see you tomorrow with more Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Don't forget to check out BearingArms.com in the meantime. And uh, until we talk again, be well, be safe, and be free. 